All right, I believe it is time to begin. Hey, I believe it's time to begin our, our session here. Uh, we've got from 2.30, I think they give us a full hour. I'm not sure I'll go the full hour, but that if we don't, that's all right, because that'll provide us for some opportunity for questions. In the past, as I've worked through Romans chapter 1, particularly with younger people, whether that be in the seminary uh, or whether that be with many of the interns who come during the summers, we, our church hosts a, a summer internship of church planting, and every year they ask me to do something, and every once in a while I'll just focus on Romans 1, trying to help them understand humanity. We talk about homartiology. We talk about our anthropology. These are two big words that talk about our doctrine. How do we think about the sin nature, and how do we think about humanity and mankind, what they think and how they think. I think Romans chapter 1 provides for us a window into humanity that is uh, perhaps the most clear, lucid presentation of how and why men think differently than we do. And this becomes problematic, particularly if you've grown up in a Christian setting a Christian home, perhaps, or you've been a Christian for a long time. And then you look at the craziness of the world and you say, now, how in the world is it going like that? How could anyone find that rational? This seems absolutely atrocious and ridiculous. Nobody would believe that, would they? And yet, do you not find yourself saying those very things as you look at the newspaper every day? I've gotten to the point where I don't want to look at the newspaper every day. Um, <clears throat> But in any case, that's why we want to look at Romans chapter 1. Now, in order to understand why we're looking at Romans chapter 1, I actually think it's imperative that we understand what Paul is doing in Romans 1. Why does Paul write the book of Romans? I think if you ask a number of lay people that question, you might get an answer something like, well, he wanted to provide a theological treatise. But Paul actually doesn't want to provide a theological treatise. We might wish he would have wanted to do that. That might have been wonderful and quite a blessing to us. But he never wanted to do that. Instead, what he wants to do is he wants to write a letter that meets the needs, whether of himself or the people. And in this case, it's actually going to be both. He's writing a letter that particularly is going to uh, meet the needs of these people. He's indicates in chapter 1 that he has longed to be with them, to share his ministry with them. But when you look in chapter 15, what you find is that Paul is actually writing for an ulterior motive, not a negative one. We often think of ulterior motives as, as something underhanded. He's not being underhanded. He explicitly tells him, one of the reasons I'm writing to you is for this reason. You notice in chapter 15, verses 19 through 24, he says this, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit, that is, that he's proclaimed the word through all this region. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, if, if I showed you a map, it's a massive region. He says, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now I'm convinced Paul is not saying that every person from those locations has heard the word. What he is saying, it seems to me, is that he has proclaimed the gospel to people strategically planted throughout all of that region, such that if they are faithful to the calling God has given to them, the gospel will radiate out from those centers and impacting those various regions. Because you'll notice what he goes on to say, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've been hindered. In, uh, from coming to you. In other words, I've wanted to come to you for some time. He tells him that in Romans chapter 1. But one of the reasons I didn't end up ever coming to you is because the gospel had already been planted here. And my goal has never been to go where the gospel already is. My calling, as Paul tells it, has been to go to places where the gospel has not been established. And so he says, in this region now, as I look around and I say, I want to go somewhere, I can't find a spot where I think there's enough of a gap to justify me going there. But there is a place, and it's Spain. And this is what he's saying. In Romans 15, I, I want to go to Spain, but in order to get to Spain, there's, there's got to be a jumping point. 
much like Paul has used Antioch as a jumping point, as a locale from which he then spiders out to the various ministry places, coming back to gain encouragement from the church and then goes back out. Now he's essentially saying, what I want to do is the same thing with you, the Roman church. But in order to do that, what Paul has to establish is that they agree on the gospel. Now, I think Paul is fairly confident that they do agree on the gospel. Why do I say that? Because if you notice Romans chapter 16, Paul knows a lot of these people. Uh, Romans chapter 16 is one of those uh, difficult to preach passages. Anybody who preached through Romans and got to Romans 16 and said, when, when in the world am I going to do now? <laughs> right? uh, it's a hard to preach passage because Paul's just saying, hey, say hi to this guy, say hi to that person. And uh, is this person an apostle, even a woman or a man? I don't know. If you're familiar with <laughs> Romans 16, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Junia <clears throat> or Junius. We'll just leave that as it is for the present moment. Uh, but he, he obviously knows quite a number of these people. So I think he believes that they're on the same page, but he wants to make it completely sure. And since he hasn't had opportunity to be there among the people, he writes this essentially as a foreshadowing of his coming to test the waters to make sure that there's unity there. Of course, he's also wanting to benefit the church. This is why he talks about the things that he talks about. It's a very general letter. Uh, you look at 1 Corinthians, for instance, and Paul's saying things like, well, in this certain case, you've written to me asking about, but he doesn't do that in Romans because I don't think he, uh, perhaps he doesn't know all the issues facing them. He writes in a rather general way, talking about issues that might face the church body as a whole. Well, that leads us back to Romans chapter 1. Uh, this is the purpose for which he's writing the book. And I think we need a bit of an introduction to Romans 1 to get to verse 18, which is the passage that I would like us to, to really consider in depth here. Uh, Romans 1 serves as what I might call an introduction to his gospel. The first six verses here are actually all about Paul. And uh, if, if you were to diagram this from a Greek uh, sentence perspective, what you'd find is that it's all developing who Paul is. But Paul's not centering on who he is, just let me tell you more about me. But he's centering on who he is as a called apostle of Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel of God. And then the rest of that section is describing what this gospel is. It's that which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it's that which was written regarding his son, verse 3, a descendant of David appointed, uh, who through the spirit of holiness appointed the Son of God in power. A lot of things we could say about that. Uh, by the resurrection of the dead, we just have to keep moving here. He's in essence saying, I, here's who I am. I am one called by God to proclaim the gospel. And this is what the gospel is in the shortest of nutshells that he could give. And he says, and my calling is to the Gentiles among whom you are Gentiles. That's why he then turns to verse 8 and he says, so since you're Gentiles and my calling has been to the Gentiles, you might wonder why have I not been among you if that is my calling. And he says, well, I do thank my God because of you. This begins verse 8 and describes who they are. They are believers in Christ. And he's thankful for the ways in which God has worked among these people. So verses 8 to 15 really highlight Paul's prayer and his desire to minister. He says, I, many times I desired to come to you, but I was refrained. I, I, was, I, I could never come to you and God never opened that door. He says in verse 14, I'm obligated to the Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. So his desire to preach in Rome has never been dissuaded, despite the fact that he's never been able to go. And now he says, I very well may have that opportunity, and so I will come. <clears throat> and then we get what I think are the thematic center of the book. I know Professor Combs has preached this, uh, taught this before, so I hope he might somewhat agree He's not agreeing, so I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> Is that how he looks every time you preach? <laughs> but verses 16 to 18, he says this. 
I am not ashamed for I am not ashamed. Here's the ground for why he wants to preach the gospel to Rome. Here's why. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. And remember, Paul is writing this in a dominantly honor-shame cultural context. And we have to... We have to dig a little bit into what exactly he means by ashamed of the gospel. I think our immediate thought is something like, you know, he's not embarrassed to teach the gospel. And that is true. He certainly doesn't express that. But I think instead this language of ashamed often refers to being disappointed in something. The gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I will not be disappointed by the gospel. The gospel is not something that will fail. The gospel is that which instead is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now I want you to, I want you to hear those words because if you've ever done a study of, of Romans, you know that Romans 1.17 is going to be a, a passage that people center on as a theme of the book. And for sure it is. But notice what he says, for in it the gospel of righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed. If I were to put a theme on the book of Romans, I would say it is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And if you think about it that way, then all of a sudden Romans 9 to 11 is not a parenthesis. A lot of times that's how it's presented. Romans 9 to 11, this whole section on the, the Jews and their failure to believe, it's, it's just a parenthesis in his argument. It's not a parenthesis in his argument. He actually has to defend the righteousness of God in the light of Jewish unbelief. How can God be righteous in light of these people through whom have received so many of the promises and yet they are not believing? If this is a defense of the righteousness of God, then it makes perfect sense why he does that in Romans 9 to 11, and that's what I would argue. But then he defines exactly what this righteousness is, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And, and many of you perhaps are aware of the grammatical features of this passage. I don't want to dig too deep into it. I think the NIV translation is a good one. From first to last, it's in essence, it's by faith from the beginning to the end, just it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, that leads us to verse 18 in the passage that I then want us to address. Paul has now indicated, I've wanted to come to preach the gospel to you because I'm the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And I have wanted to preach to you the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. In it, in this gospel, this good news, the righteousness of God is shown to all people. Now, the question that we might have in our minds and the question that Paul has underlying the surface is this question, because if you came to a group today and said, you know, I've wanted to come talk to you because I want to talk to you about the righteousness of God, which saves all of you. What might they ask? Exactly. They would say, all right, well, I guess that's great, but I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to be saved from. What's the problem here? And that's where Paul's going to go next. He says, I'm excited about the gospel because it's the answer to your chief problem. And of course, then the question is, well, what's my chief problem? And Paul says, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, I want you to notice that language is being revealed. Did you just see that a second ago? There's this comparison. The righteousness of God is revealed, but the wrath of God is also being revealed. The revelation of his righteousness and the revelation of his wrath, they come together. And indeed, if you don't know his wrath, then you'll never know his righteousness. Now, let's think about this for just a moment. If I were to ask you, what does the wrath of God look like? Or maybe you're too astute of an educated audience here. And so maybe I wouldn't ask you. Maybe I go to the congregation, a broad congregation, people who've been in the church for some time, and I say, what does the wrath of God look like? What would they answer? What do you think? Hell might be one of the chief ways. What else? Dissolution. Dissolution. God's judgment on my life. Maybe I've been in sin. 
and I've done things that I shouldn't have done, and now God's bringing judgment. So the wrath of God is God's active coming into my life or coming into someone's life and bringing justice to bear on their sin. Exactly. These sorts of concepts, for sure, come along in the minds of people. Paul, on the other hand, has what I would argue is a bit of a different vantage point of of what the wrath of God is. So let's look at verse 18 again to try and understand what the wrath of God is. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So here's how Paul starts this section about the sinfulness of humanity. He says, God's wrath is right now being revealed to all of humanity. And it's revealed against the godlessness of, and wickedness of people. Now, I've provided an outline for you. I'm on page two. And I'm under the section three that says, why do we need the gospel? I think this is Paul's major theme in this, in this section 18 to 32. He's answering the question, why do we need the gospel? And I think in order to understand what Paul is doing here, you, be, you have to understand some of the presuppositions of his thought. And one of the presuppositions of his thought revealed in this passage to a certain degree, but some of the, some of the themes underlying it uh, come from his understanding of Scripture. The first point is this, we need the gospel because God hates sin. We need the gospel because God hates sin. This is the first reason we need the gospel. Why does God hate sin? <clears throat> well, the Scriptures tell us that God hates sin because it is unnatural. It is foreign to the world that God created. And you think in in terms of Genesis, how God creates the world. God creates this perfect world. Just read Genesis 1. What does he say at the end of the creation days? It is good. It is good. It is exactly as I intended to make it. Perhaps it might be like my... Uh, in-laws, or I, I'm, uh, my, yeah, my brother-in-law, who um, when, they, they got a, when they were married, they had a portrait made of him and his wife. And it's this, it's a beautiful portrait. And yet when they were moving, damage was done to the portrait. And now there's this unnatural mar directly across this otherwise beautiful picture. Well, my my sister's beautiful, but um, in any case, uh, <laughs> across this beautiful picture is this unnatural mar. And this is what sin is in God's good creation. God has created this wonderful thing, and yet sin has come and it has marred that creation. But sin is not only unnatural, sin is unlawful. And we see this in terms of the, the passage we just read, is you think about sin Uh, looking at the book of Genesis, looking throughout Romans chapter 1 and all the way into Romans chapter 5, what we find about sin is that it's the breaking of God's law. It's not merely that it's unnatural to God's creation, but it's actually against what God has literally commanded man. Of course, going back to the garden, it's the eating of the fruit, but we've multiplied sin by by now to various ways in which we say this is what God has decreed to be the case within his creation, but sin is unlawful. Sin is also harmful. And I I think that this is often missed in relation to God's good creation. But again, I'm trying to, to build the foundation upon which Paul would have thought about God's good creation from Genesis throughout the Old Testament. And one of the things we would have understood was that God created the world for man. For man to enjoy. The world was not intentionally or 
initially designed to be harmful. I don't know how it would have came about, but man would not have been harmed by the world in which he lives. And yet we live in a world that is so full of harm. They're, they're so full of things that can hurt the creature. Sin has produced this. And this is why I think in Romans chapter 8, the scripture text tells us that one of these days, the creation that longs for restoration will receive that restoration. It's not supposed to be this way. And the fourth thing, sin is against God's nature. If you understand the way that the scriptures teach this, from Genesis 1, the reason that man was indicated to do certain things was because he's made in the image of God. He's to reflect God, uh, both in the character qualities in which he has, but then in the way he rules and reigns over the creation that he's been put as king over to a certain degree. And we see this in this passage because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against godlessness. Do you know what that means? It means that man is acting unlike God. He's not being like God. That's what sin is. Sin is unnatural. It's unlawful. It's harmful. It's against God's nature. So we need the gospel because God hates sin. I think there's a second reason Paul tells us we need the gospel in this passage, and that is because people are sinners. Again, we're still in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness. So one might immediately think what God's wrath is revealed against is just the godlessness. But notice that the godlessness is obtained within humanity. It is taken on by humans because the godlessness and wickedness of people. How are men wicked? Now, of course, here we are in, in this room, and we could spend the rest of the time talking about that. But Paul's going to really define one particular way in which mankind's wickedness is displayed. It's an egregious way. If you understand the creation account, God has made us for his own purposes. He's made us to enjoy this creation in a good creation, and yet we've, we've broken it. We've willingly chosen our own sin, but notice that the chief sin in which Paul initially wants us to understand man's sin in relation to, why is it that man, sin, man is sin, a sinner? Verse 18, it's because of this. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Men suppress the truth by their wickedness. So how are men sinners? First, men sin by refusing to recognize the truth. Well, how is this truth of God revealed man? Well, you'll notice verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Now, it's quite possible, and some have argued this, that what Paul is saying here is what may be known about God is plain in them that there's actually an inherent knowledge of God. Now, whether Paul is making that explicit argument or not, it would be hard for me to argue that he explicitly is. But I think Calvin, in his book on the Institutes, makes an incredibly good theological argument for this. That the way in which God made man is such that he cannot forget God. Indeed, if you've ever read the Institutes, you'll know that he begins with this question. He says, I'm not sure which comes first, the knowledge of God or the knowledge of ourselves? And that, that seems to, to most people to be a curious question. Well, why would you think that? Of course, knowledge of ourselves comes first. But as Kelvin understands it, the knowledge of ourselves comes mediated through knowledge of God. You cannot know yourself unless you first know God. There's an inherent knowledge of God. And I think that that is for sure truly the case. Of course, even if we don't say that Paul is arguing that here, what he is going to say in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, indicates to us that God has already established within the internal heart of man knowledge. Notice with me in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He says, and this is parenthetical to his argument, but it's central to our purposes. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature 
Now that language by nature is going to be really important a little bit later in our passage uh, of chapter 1 and elsewhere. Uh, Paul, for instance, says in Galatians, I, by nature, born a Jew. That is, by birth, I had this inherent quality. He says, by nature, things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Now we can't work through all of what Paul means there, but at least he means this, that God has given to every single human, every single human, a law within their heart. They know right, they know wrong. (coughs) Having said that, I think it's not a far fetch to also ask the question, has he not also given him a knowledge of himself? And C.S. Lewis actually connects these two thoughts. He says, you know, when I recognize within myself that I was judging certain things as evil, what I then thought was, how did I even get the idea of evil or good? And that led me to consider that this whole time that I've been angry, I've been angry at a person, not, not just something immaterial. His point was, when I was angry about the law, I knew that things were wrong. I was angry about them being wrong. At the same time in which I was doing that, I had to admit that there was a lawmaker. There was, he was already there. That's why the law was there. In any case... How do men refuse to recognize the truth? I think first they refuse to recognize the truth that is inherent in them. They second refuse to recognize the truth that is directly in their face. Again, 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made. Could Paul have made it any clearer that mankind, every man, knows God? Could he have made it any clearer? (laughs) How many times does he say, this was made plain to them? God made it plain to them. It was already known. You see, I think Paul, though he never mentions the psalm, he's thinking in reference to the psalms in which uh, the, the scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Essentially, the sun from one side to the other spreads the knowledge of God and we cannot escape it. So man knows God in himself and in all of creation, every moment he opens his eyes, he is confronted with the realization of a God who exists. And yet they reject this knowledge. God showed it to them. He's clearly understood as being understood. And so they've rejected this knowledge. But of course, men sin because they also refuse to honor God. And this is where it's getting to because you'll notice that God has created man, at least in part, to honor him and thank him for the grace in which he's shown in creating them. Notice 21. For although they knew God, again, Paul's saying, look, I'm not even going to give a moment's notice to the person who says, I don't know God. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Because what I want us to focus on in the time that we have remaining, we've we've built a foundation for where we've gotten to so far. What Paul's saying is, here's why we need the gospel, because men are sinners. And they sin by rejecting a sure and firm knowledge that they already have. What does this then look like as that's lived out in the world? Because that's what Paul's going to get to. And what we're going to see as we continue to work through this is more and more glimpses of our modern culture. This is the story of humanity. And it's a story that as we're, as we're reading it, as we're looking through and following the logic of what Paul says, we're saying, that rings true. And so we're going to develop that here in just a moment. But before I get there, I want us to actually pause and consider what this says for you and me. 
See, because God made you. He put a law in your heart. He put a knowledge of himself in you. And why did he do all of that? So that you would give him honor and you would give him thanks. One of the things I've, I've done on a yearly basis in the adult Bible fellowship that I have opportunity to teach here at, at uh, Inner City Baptist Church, every year we work through just that section of the passage and say, one of the things God wants us to do is to give him honor and give him thanks. If we refuse to do this, then we are no different than the unbelievers to whom God's wrath is being poured out on. This is what makes us different. And so I say to you, uh, exhort you, in what way is your life giving glory and honor to Christ? Because this is what you were made for. This is what Paul's point is. Well, of course, mankind generally then has rejected this creational purpose. They refuse to glorify him. They refuse to give him thanks. And you'll notice that this actually has incredible consequences for us. Because notice, but their thinking became futile. You see, here's the alternative. In essence, Paul is saying this, you really have two choices. Do you want to give God glory and thanks? Do you want to give him the honor and thanks that are due his name? Or do you want to begin down the path of God's wrath? The path of God's wrath will lead you to foolishness, will lead you to a futility of life. You will not accomplish the purpose you were made for. Oh, how ironic it is that our world today says things like, you need to follow your heart and then fulfill your true purpose. When Romans 1 says, don't follow your heart so that you can fulfill your true purpose. So opposite to the Disney message that is so prevalent in our society today. So what happens then? We need the gospel because God hates sin. We need the gospel because men are sinners. See, we need the gospel because God's wrath rests on sinners. So just as God's righteousness is being revealed from heaven, so God's wrath is currently being revealed to mankind. So what does God's wrath look like? It isn't the thunder and the lightning. What we're going to find is the center point of God's wrath is this. God's wrath looks like this. In other words, God's wrath is God who otherwise could stand in our way and stop us from heading on the path that is natural to fallen humanity, the path of foolishness, the, fa- the, the path of continual numbingness of, the, of our hearts. He could stop us, but instead God's wrath is literally to step out of our way and to let us continue to go our own way. Everyone looks for God's wrath in the thunder, but God's wrath is often in his silence. So what does the wrath of God look like? That's what we want to look at here in this section. Of course, the context of the wrath is, by, is man's own sinful rejection of what God has revealed. And of course, someone's going to want to say, well, Paul, wait a second, man's really not all that guilty. And he says, but did, let's start again. <laughs> let's go back to verse 18. Somewhere you missed something I've said. It's also occasioned by man's tendency to substitute God for created things because, again, our purpose is to give him honor and to give him thanks. But here's what sinful mankind does, is they say, I will not give him honor and give him thanks. But because I am made to give honor and give thanks, I'm going to give honor and give thanks to something else. You see, they can't break the honor and thanks. They're going to. The question is, what are they going to give honor and thanks to? And they've chosen, in Paul's day, to give honor and thanks to the created things. And lest we think that we're in a greater situation than them, uh, and often we do, we think, oh, look, <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it quaint that those people worshipped idols? We have just substituted idols of wood for idols of ideology. 
And so what stood at one time as an idol in which you could bow down to, we no longer bow down to certain idols, but we have ideologies like materialism that uh, in essence we bow down to. We've embraced it just like previous generations embraced other things. And so now you have people like Richard Dawkins who just have to praise creation itself, which is no better than praising the wood of the tree. It's all the same thing. You've got created things and non, the non-created thing, God himself. And if you're not going to give praise to the one who's non-created, then you're going to have to give praise to something created. So what does the beginning of God's wrath looks like? The first element of God's wrath is exhibited by the natural process of stupefaction, resulting from welcomed ignorance. Again, there in that first section, but instead of giving him honor and praise, what happens? Their thinking became futile. What is a futile heart? It's a heart that is becoming useless. We think of something that's futile. Uh, don't do that. It's futile. It's, it's not, it won't work. It isn't going to do what you, what you thought it was going to do. And their foolish hearts were darkened. The concept here is that what should be light is now darkened. And the, the, the dark path is one in which you stumble along because you don't know where to go. The darkened heart is one that begins to lose focus on what it should be doing. And, and Paul says... And and this is the greatest irony, isn't it? Verse 22. They claim to be wise. That is, even in the midst of becoming stupid, losing knowledge, losing the right way of viewing things, they were all the more confirmed in their choices. This is the wrath of God, that mankind who chooses the wrong path is convinced that the wrong path is the right path. And continually, as they walk that path, more and more is convinced that the broad path is the right path. They became fools, he says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So the first stage of God's wrath begins here. Now then there are three additional stages of this wrath, and they're all given with the language of God gave them over. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the phrase Paul uses to give this progress in relation to what happens to mankind. By the way, if you're ever reading Ephesians 4, it it really is a microcosm of Romans 1. Ephesians 4, 17 says this, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking. Look at, listen to that word, futility, same word. They're darkened in their understanding. Do you remember what Paul just said? That their, mind, that their hearts were darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. And they're separated from the life of God. Because why? Of the ignorance that is in them. And we might think that this is an ignorance that is justifiable. Because we like to think that. No, they're ignorant. And so we can't hold them to account. But you'll notice what he says, due to the hardening of their hearts. Why are they ignorant? Because they've chosen this path. And having lost all sensitivity, he says in verse 19, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. So, notice Ephesians 4 is really a microcosm of Romans 1 broadly embraced. So let's work through what Ephesians 4 says that Ephesians 1 then develops more greatly. The first stage here comes in verse 24. You might call it the second stage because you've already got that first one, but I'll call it the first stage of the three stages in which God says God gave them over. Verse 24, Therefore, since mankind knew God, refused to recognize Him as God, refused to give Him thanks, started to become darkened in their understanding. So here's what God does. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Sexual impurity here refers to just a general term talking about sexual, any kind of sexual uh, things you might think of. And uh, we in the, in the Western world have historically become quite a bit prudish 
on sexual things. You went back in Paul's day, at least among the Romans, and you read some of their literature, their gods and the things that their gods were doing desensitized these people to sexual mores. Of course, within the Jewish community, you would have a, a, a tighter hold on that, but not within the, the Roman community. They, they were wide open with these things. And what Paul says is, hey, listen, because they refused to acknowledge God, here's what God did. He gave them over to the desires of their hearts. What do they desire? They desire sexual impurity. And this leads to a degrading of their bodies. One of the things I don't understand about our current cultural climate, and I've never understood this, is in a moment in which we say we are upholding the dignity of women, we also are upholding the seeming righteousness of pornography, which is, I can't think of anything that is more degrading to the human person than that. It seems irrational. It seems so out of bounds. And yet, what do we find today? You can't watch the halftime show of, the, of, a, of an NFL game because the sexuality is so explicit there. And the moment you say something like, you know, we shouldn't have any of that, people will say, what are you talking about? You, you prude. You know, you're way out of bounds. You need to get with the spirit of the age. This is fully acceptable. In fact, your preschoolers should be seeing this. How could you get to that point? Well, verse 24 tells us, God gave them to their sinful desires, to the impurity, to the degrading of their bodies. And I think this language of giving them over to it suggests that not only do they do these things, but then they begin to value them. This is what true life's all about. The real life is fulfilling all of the sexual passions you might have. And if you, if you choose to not do that, then you're missing out on life. And of course, that's the darkened way of understanding the world, isn't it? So, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is to be forever praised. Amen. So the first stage is giving over to sexual impurity. Second stage, Verse 26, because of this, because they went down the first path, because they went through the first gate, then God gave them over to shameful lusts. Well, what exactly do we mean by these shameful lusts? Well, he goes on to explicitly tell us what he means. <coughs> Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, men with men. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul notes that this form of sexuality that these people were given over to is really a first gate in which as people progress on this path, if you've embraced this, then you're on the path to a second gate of God's wrath in which God steps aside so that mankind will no longer merely embrace broad sexual unfaithfulness, but then they will even begin to embrace shameful sexuality. BDAG notes that dishonor is disaster in a Greco-Roman society in which civic-minded persons place a high premium on honor and in the enjoyment of repute. Of course, Paul's chief illustration here is homosexuality, both male and female, and that's important uh, for a reason we'll talk about it a little bit later. Paul says that homosexuality is shameful. Well, why is this? We'll talk about it in just a few min minutes when we get to some questions here at the bottom. Make sure I'm doing all right on time. All right. <clears throat> Third stage, verse 28. All right, uh, yeah. Verse 28. So, they've been given over to sexual immorality. Second of all, they were given over to 
shameful lusts of their hearts. Third, they're given over to a depraved mind. Look at verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That is, remember back in that first stage, they had this knowledge of God and they said, it's not even worthwhile to keep that in here. I want to push that away. He says, so since this is the case, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they ought to do what not, so, so that they do what ought not to be done. That is, now these people are given over to a depraved, a debased, a broken mind so that they're doing things that should never be done. And then notice how Paul just piles on the descriptors. They're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Disobey their parents, have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. So this third stage is God giving them over to what I would call a depraved mind. And and Paul uses this play on words. They didn't think it reasonable to keep God in their mind, so God gives them an unreasonable mind. Their minds, having chosen foolishness, have failed the test. They are depraved. That's what the language of, of failing the test means. And they're now, their their minds themselves, this is the language, the mind itself is unreliable. You can't trust your own mind. And you think about that, how how frightening that is. And this is is the existence of some people who are experiencing late stage dementia and things, and and some of whom are aware of it. And, And it's very frightening. And these people, Paul tells us, have failed the test and are now unreliable in mind. They're doing things that ought not to be done. And and Paul mentions just this litany of sins. And I think the progression here is clear then. You're given to your lusts. Those lusts produce unnatural lusts. And those unnatural lusts, those shameful lusts, lead to full moral bankruptcy. We like to think of ourselves as rather rational beings and that what we do is is a reasonable thing. And yet Paul tells us that our cognitive faculties are actually affected by our ethics. Our ability to think is determined by what we do. We don't like to think that way, but it is true. Foolish choices create more foolish choices. So what happens in result of God's wrath? After such God's wrath, God's people still retain knowledge. There's still a knowledge there. How do we know that? Because he says, listen, they know that such things are worthy of death. They still know it. That hasn't been excised from their mind. They know that such things are worthy of death, but nevertheless, they approve of those who practice such things. What does this mean? I I think what Paul's saying is they become cheerleaders of evil. And why might mankind want to be cheerleaders of evil? What do you think? What does it do? It verifies. Look, homosexuality isn't wrong. Do you realize how many many people are... uh, Married and in homosexual relationships, loving homosexual relationships? How could you say such a thing? Don't you know how many people? Uh, I can't believe you said that because. Exactly. I, I mean, how could you have said that? Don't you know that our society has already embraced this? This, this is just obvious at this point. And there's a committed shame to those who would disapprove of them. And I note here, it's only a slight further step in this direction that such people also disapprove 
of those who do not do them. You see, if you approve of it, then here's the thing, everybody's got to approve of it. What if we don't approve of it? Well, then there's probably going to be problems. And this is the point we've, we've come to today, isn't it? Uh, we can look at things and we can say, no, that, that seems completely wrong. And there's a moral bankruptcy, sometimes evident on the surface. I mean, so, do you not realize that the whole transgenderism argument makes no logical sense? Like, there's literally no logic that could be here. Any philosophy person who's being honest has to say, all right, the argument doesn't go their way. But we've come to a point where the logic isn't the issue anymore. And you've got to bend logic to the ethics. And that's where we've come in, in, our, in our age today. So let me work through a number of questions, I think, that this passage then raises for us. And uh, what do I have till 3.30? Is that what it is? Okay. All right, so a couple of questions. First of all, are atheists lying? So somebody, I witness to him on the street, they say, I don't believe in God. And my answer to that is no. Um, Comfort has written a book that says, God doesn't believe in atheists. And I, I kind of like the, like, the, like the narrative of that book. But I do think that there are people who legitimately don't believe in the existence, existence of God. Or here's how I would put it. They don't believe they believe the existence of God. And why do I put it that way? Because you'll notice in, chapter, in verse 18, he says, how do they reject this knowledge of God? They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Suppress is the language of pushing something down, trying to avoid the implications of some belief. And how do they do this? They do this by their own wickedness. So to the degree that they continue in this wickedness, this wickedness makes them foolish. This foolishness masks the knowledge that is already inherent in their heart. So here's how I put it. All mankind has a deep-seated knowledge of God that they can never escape. All mankind also has a deceptive nature that is so prevalent that every time that knowledge that is inside them seeks to get out, their sinful nature processes some deceptive element to prevent it from coming. Now, I don't think they're always successful. I think every atheist periodically comes to points where they are just confronted with the truth of God. And they don't like it. But I think that is the case uh, um, the, the language that uh, is used historically about that is fresh drops of God's knowledge come upon men. That's, uh, that's one way of speaking about it. That's what Calvin says. Second question, is Paul speaking of groups or individuals? Because this is a question. Is Paul saying, listen, a man... If he rejects the knowledge of God, here's the process he goes through so that I can say, all right, and I'm talking to this person. So are they in first step, second step, third step? Where are they at in this? Or is it that Paul is talking about a whole society that's gone this way? I would simply say this. I'm not sure that Paul would make a distinction between those two in this way. That I think he's primarily talking about individuals. But when enough individuals have gone this way, a society's gone this way. And I think in any society, in the Puritan society, you could have found people who had done this. But in our society, this, like, this is praised. This is the direction you should go. And so are we surprised that the majority of Western people are catapulted quickly through this process? I'm not surprised by that, because this is what we're honoring in the present age. So I think it is talking about individuals, but it can have application to groups, as I think we're probably in today. Uh, the third point, did Paul really condemn homosexuality? And there are some who say, well, no, what he's talking about here is pederasty, that is the abuse of boys. But the problem is, there is no historical evidence that that ever happened with women. And Paul here mentions that the shameful activity not only occurred between men and men, but women and women. Further, the use of against nature, that's what Paul says there. He says that this is against nature. That language is used by Plutarch, Philo, Josephus, Musonius, and Rufus, all in reference to homosexuality. 
Even in the Greco-Roman time, there were some ethicists who were saying that homosexuality is against nature. It isn't the way it's supposed to be, which is pretty evident and obvious to anyone who ever, who's ever thought about it. Fourth question, is homosexuality a greater sin than other sins? Some people want to suggest that what Paul's doing is going to greater levels of sin. And I would answer that yes and no. Yes. Why does Paul highlight it where he does? I think what he's saying is this, that there takes a level of brokenness within an individual in order for them to think that homosexuality is right. Because there's a natural knowledge of God within their mind. And part of that natural knowledge is what God has placed in their heart. But I think a second thing, God has given to us a natural law. And it is evident, as I just mentioned a moment ago, that a man is to be with a woman and a woman to be with a man. And that a man doesn't go with a man and a woman doesn't go with a woman. It just doesn't work. And so I think the reason that Paul highlights homosexuality there is not so much because it's this magnificent sin. It's that it's very much like the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is an innate knowledge that mankind has, but they push it aside because they'd rather something else. And when they started to do that, guess what else they're going to do? They're going to go to other things that are clearly revealed in God's world. And they're going to start pushing those aside too. I think that's why he goes to homosexuality in this passage. And so therefore, I think in another sense, the answer is no. If Paul wanted to highlight homosexuality as the chief sin, he probably would have left it to last. Instead, he, it's a middling section for Paul for the very reason I just suggested a moment ago. It's a stepping stone. And I really do believe that it's a stepping stone. I remember reading a, a, a story about a number of um, mass murderers. And they were asked, what do you think started your journey to killing so many people? And almost to a T, Every one of them said, pornography. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Because we're told sexuality, that's just in the bedroom. What you do with your body, that's just between you and whoever else you do something with. But I think Paul is saying here, and I think Scripture is telling us, what you do with your body is actually quite significant. And your view of sexuality will determine quite a bit. Because your view of sexuality is determined already by what you think. Does God exist? If he does, then I'm here for a reason. And it's not the fulfillment of everything I want to do. If God exists, then he's made me and he's made this world. And this world indicates that men are to be with women and women are to be with men. And can I reject that or not? If you've already rejected God, then what constraint is there on what I do with my body? Why couldn't I be with an animal? I mean, this is where our society's going, by the way. I was, I was listening to NPR. Uh, uh, must have been three years ago. I was listening to NPR. And it was telling this love story about a man and his horse. If you, don't, if you want a reason not to listen to NPR, there's number 472, okay? All right. I still listen to it, but, but man, it, sometimes it just gets you going, right? Um, because why? What, what's going to stop you? If there is no God, right? And I think that's, that's the process. But of course, once you begin to do that, and once you begin to break the natural constraints of the natural law, what's going to stop you from anything? Why should I care about my neighbor's right to live? And our world wants to say, well, you should. But Why? You see, you've, you've eliminated the foundation. You eliminated God. You eliminated the natural law. What, what else is there? And so what Paul does is he brings him to this precipice and he says, listen, this is the direction that mankind is going. And I think when we look at our society as a whole, we can look at the sexual revolution as just, who cares? That's bedroom stuff. Just leave it alone. But have we not seen what that's led to? And did was there not a warning about what, the sexual revolution actually indicated about the state of men's hearts? The final question I want us to ask 
is this, is there hope for those in the second and third depths of deception? I think two answers might be given. First, regeneration is the unilateral work of God and can surely overcome whatever human limitations we put before it. Having said that, I do believe that evangelism is made more difficult to the degree that people are in the second and third stages. Machen, in an article titled Culture and Christianity, addresses this issue. He says it would be a great mistake to suppose that all men are equally well prepared to receive the gospel. It's true that the decisive thing is the regenerative power of God. That can overcome all lack of preparation, and the absence of that makes even the best preparation useless. But as a matter of fact, God usually exerts that power in connection with certain prior conditions of the human mind, and it should be ours to create so far as we can with the help of God those favorable conditions for the reception of the gospel. False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Under such circumstances, what God desires to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. Now, you're not hearing me call for a total revolution and transformation of society. I think maybe to some degree, he may have been uh, along that line, Machen. But I think in our own personal relationships, we must maintain the biblical truth. And to the degree that we do, we place people in such a position that there are less boundaries. And this is probably the way I'd put it. And this is, I think, what apologetics really is. Apologetics is removing barriers that prevent people from listening to the gospel or from hearing it. And our culture is lining up those barriers. And one of the things we have to do, particularly within the church, is to be confronting such barriers, especially for our young people. Second, and I think this is the encouraging part, we have examples of people being transformed from even the second and third degrees. It was in the midst of the whole Roman society given over to the second and third degrees of wrath that the gospel penetrated and transformed much of the world. This was Paul's world, was it not? And specifically, Paul indicates that some of the readers were once homosexuals in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But such were some of you. What glorious language. So what are some final implications? I'll read these and we have to be done. First, sexual sin is not merely sexual sin. It's a stepping stone to moral bankruptcy. Second, we shouldn't be surprised when our culture wants us to approve of their own sinful actions. To the degree we refuse, we remind them of that which they are actively trying to forget. Do you see, they, they have a knowledge of God, but they're suppressing it by their wickedness. And they have a knowledge of God's law, and they're suppressing it by their wickedness. But the moment you stand up and you say, no, you know what, actually, a man is a man, and a woman is a woman. No, actually... Uh, There is no such thing as gay marriage. No, um, I can't justify and say that what you're doing is right. The moment you say that you know what you're doing, you're reminding them of knowledge that they can't get rid of. And they want to get rid of it. So how are they going to get rid of it? They're going to get rid of the people who are reminding them of that which they don't want to think about. This is where our society is. Third, the greatest expression of God's wrath in this age is not the thunder, it's the silence. What the human heart leans towards self-destruction and when God steps aside to allow them to continue in their self-destruction, this is the wrath of God. And finally, the chief problem of man is not evidence. Often this is what we hear, if we could only confront mankind with the evidence then certainly they would turn. But here's what Paul tells us. They've got all the evidence in the world. Evidence is everywhere. It's plenteous, not only outside them, but inside them. Man's failure is not a knowledge issue. It is an ethical issue. And until we begin to address the ethical issue, we're going to have a real hard time addressing the ontological issue. Does God exist? Often, the best way of answering that question to an unbeliever is not directly going to the five proofs 
these sorts of things because their major problem isn't intellectual. It's deeper than that. It's they do not see themselves as sinful. And what they then need is the fullness of the gospel, which is what Paul presents in Romans. He says, listen, the wrath of God is being revealed right now against this sort of ungodlessness. Look at this process. And God's wrath has already come on that. That's why they're where they're at. And God's wrath is going to continue to come on that. Eschatologically, it's coming. But then what Paul does in the rest of this volume is say, but God's righteousness is also revealed at the same time as his wrath is revealed. Indeed, God's wrath reveals God's righteousness because here's how God can make man righteous, even though he's muffed it up like you wouldn't believe. 